I want them to learn visual models or I want them to learn multiple representations, bigger ideas. And then there's even like this bigger idea, which is like, I want them to be creative problem solvers. All three of these are happening simultaneously. And you somehow as the math teacher have to juggle that with 30 kids in your class and get them all to some place. And I think that it's just a hard job that we have, but it's a wonderful job that we have. I'm wondering specifically... That is Asim Kelly, an eighth grade teacher in his sixth year of teaching, trying to hash through resource overwhelm, assessment techniques, frameworks, and community building. We chat with Asim in this math mentoring moment episode about the three levels of learning goals in your math class, how to choose the best resources for your students, and how to narrow your focus so that your students can succeed. Here we go. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from tapintoteenminds.com. And I'm John Orr from mrorr-isageek.com. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Welcome to episode number 48 Three levels of learning goals, a math mentoring moment. Let's do this. This here is another math mentoring moment episode where we chat with a member of the Making Math Moments That Matter community, like you, who is working through a challenge. And together, we brainstorm ideas and next steps to help overcome it. We want to give a quick shout out to Moose Cat, who left us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. I love the name. Here's what Moose Cat says. Let the listening begin. Just found this podcast and have listened to the first four so far, and I am hooked. Exactly what I have been looking for in my math teaching. Thank you for that five-star review, Moosecat. It might be my favorite username to date. We chat with the team today about choosing learning goals and narrowing your focus. If you want more professional learning, we encourage you to register for the Make Math Moments Virtual Summit. Yes, that's right. We're running a free online math professional development summit for K through 12 educators. The Make Math Moments Virtual Summit is running on Saturday, November 16th and Sunday, November 17th, and will feature sessions from past and upcoming Making Math Moments That Matter podcast guests such as Joe Bowler, Andrew Stidell, Sunil Singh, Dr. Nikki Newton, Skip Fennell, and his team of Formative Five authors, and so many more. Register for this year's summit at makemathmoments.com forward slash summit. Listening to this episode after November 17th, 2019, you can still head to makemathmoments.com forward slash summit to add your name to the waitlist for the next Make Math Moments virtual summit. Head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash summit. All right, let's jump into our conversation with Asim Kelly. Hey there, Asim. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. We are recording this in the middle of 
summer, right in the middle between July and August. But I just heard from you before we hit record that it's the end of your summer and you are starting school very, very, very soon. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me and John, especially for coming back from your camping trip in the wilderness to the real world. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was awesome and refreshing to do that. And I was off the grid for exactly seven days, completely off the grid, which is a nice refresher for me. That's awesome. Yeah, but school's starting pretty soon. So next Wednesday, school starts. We're already doing some teacher training. I just moved to a new school, so I'm doing a little bit of some new teacher orientation stuff. Fantastic. Well, so you're going to be in a new school. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Where are you coming to us from? How long you've been teaching? And maybe just a little bit of background on your teaching journey. For sure. So I became a teacher in 2013. So not that long ago, I've been teaching. This is my sixth year of teaching. I taught in Los Angeles, California for a solid four years. It's like where I kind of got my grounding in a really progressive school in Los Angeles Unified. And just last year moved to rural Southern Illinois. And it's very different. My wife is beginning her medical school journey out here. And so kind of moved with her and started at a new school last year. Uh, Wasn't a great fit. I've been teaching high school, mostly ninth and 10th grade since I started. And this actually meant not only am I changing schools again this year, but I'm teaching eighth grade for the first time. Ah, interesting. Really interesting. And, you know, I find it interesting when I hear people moving from California to basically anywhere else. Like I find like (laughs) I tend to move to California and it sounds like you've headed uh, kind of a little bit closer to John and I. John and I are just on the other side of the Detroit River. So we're about a state over from you here in Windsor, Ontario, just outside of Windsor, Ontario. Uh, What sparked that move? Was it your wife's like continuing her journey on career advancement? Yeah. So she's doing a program where she gets an automatic admittance into their medical school. And so we decided to move for that. And she's doing amazing in school. So I don't regret the move at all. It's been really cool to see her do her thing. You did mention something a little bit more curious when you said it's very different teaching in rural Southern Illinois versus LA. Do you mind elaborating on that difference? Yeah. Let's see. The school in Los Angeles was something called a pilot school. I don't know how common pilot schools are, but I think that everybody knows the difference between public and charter schools, but this school was a public Los Angeles unified school but we had a lot of autonomy as teachers. So teachers were a part of budget decisions. We were a part of hiring decisions. We got to be a part of lots of administrative decisions, curriculum decisions, scheduling decisions. So teachers were really running the school. We all teachers had some administrative duties and it was a lot. It was a lot of extra work because teachers were in charge of the scheduling, there were also a lot of extra allowances within that. So for example, every teacher pretty much had two conference periods to be able to get their administrative duties done and their teaching duties done. And it was a super student-led school. Everybody was pretty much on board with the vision. Coming here to Southern Illinois, one thing I've experienced, which is hilarious, is just that people in California aren't the nicest people. I'm realizing it. <laughs> we're not the <laughs> nicest people. Like, I remember when I got to Illinois and people were talking to me in the grocery store, and I'm just like, you're a stranger. Why are you talking to me? And I realized, oh, I'm being rude. Oh, that's me. So people out here in the Midwest are really, really friendly and really willing to connect with people. 
schools are run very differently out here. Teacher-led schools, I haven't found very many out here where I live. I haven't found very many schools, period. There's only a few schools within like a 30-mile radius of me. So that's been different. Districts are a lot smaller. Superintendents have a much bigger role than they did in a big urban district like Los Angeles. So lots to get used to, but I think that I'm really taking in stride and enjoying it here. You know, it sounds like you're coming from a scenario where there was a lot of autonomy and really a lot of confidence and, you know, those admin duties you had referenced that teachers had. So really it was like teachers were leaned on to be leaders. And at least at that particular school, it sounds like that was something that seemed to be working or quite positive anyway for your experience. Yeah, it was really growing. I mean, it was my first four years of teaching. So to have to be trusted with administrative duties was pretty exciting to start off like that. Before we get into some of your successes and challenges, can you give us a little bit more backstory on maybe why you wanted to become a teacher? We love hearing these kinds of stories, and I think our listeners do too. So what made you get into this kind of profession? Well, I started in college as a bioengineering major, and I really hated engineering. It wasn't what I was wanting to do. So I radically made a switch to anthropology. And once I started learning about human beings, and once I started learning about how much I care about working with people, you know, I love math and physics. And so I decided to minor in math as well. And it kind of just seemed like the most natural place where my frustrations with the world met my passion and my skill set. I think that there's a lot of things in the math education in America that frustrate me, especially being a black male. I think that I see a lot of kids who look like me not succeeding and not doing as well as their counterparts of other ethnicities. And so I feel that a little bit more urgently. And I felt like it was the place where my passion met my skill set and it kind of just took over. And it's what I do night and day is teach. Well, we're so happy that uh, we have this time to chat with you today. Before we dive in, we want to ask a question we ask every episode of this podcast. And that is when we think back or when you think back to your experience in math class, what is a math moment that has stuck with you? I think the first one that comes to mind is in eighth grade, I guess it's like two in one. Well, in seventh grade, I had my very first math teacher who looked like me. He was a black man. I remember it was like a magical experience for me. It was just like the first time I saw somebody who looked like me in a position of authority like that in a classroom. And he was very well known as the best teacher at the school and like the toughest teacher at the school. And that was really exciting. But at the same time, I also remember that in seventh grade, we took algebra one. And in eighth grade, he kind of let those of us who did very well in Algebra 1, there were only five of us, he let those five of us kind of do an independent study on our own of geometry during our eighth grade year. And we were kind of alone studying in the corner while the rest of the class was doing Algebra 1 again. And I remember feeling very flippant about that. Like, yep, I'm in the good group. And those other kids just didn't do what they were supposed to do. And I remember that stuck with me because when I started to learn about math education more and I started to learn about equity more, I realized like, man, we were really just 
favored and tracked and put into that higher level when I bet a bunch of other kids probably could have really flourished doing something like that, but weren't given the opportunity. So it was a little bittersweet of a memory. I can relate somewhat to some of those memories where you're seeing certain students in groups of students. And I had that same thing. I used to get, you know, these stickers for the math I did, but not everyone was getting those. And it was kind of like, it was felt great at the time. And I didn't get it until later. That's something maybe could have been a little different in that class. And I'm wondering how that has affected your teaching right now and maybe has allowed you to experience some success. Do you mind uh, sharing a recent success that you've had in your role as a teacher? So I got started teaching in 2013. And I feel like Mit Boss and I Teach Math, like that community has just been on fire, I feel like, since I began. And I feel like I've had so many resources to start off with. I know I hear from teachers who like start off teaching really traditionally, and then they have to kind of like unlearn some of those old habits. I feel like I've had a lot of resources kind of from the beginning. And because of that, I think like last year, I incorporated so many different types of activities. And I remember having one student, he was tracked into the lower math class the year prior. And so he was a 10th grader in my ninth grade math class. And when I first had him on Desmos and I had him do, I'm sure you guys have seen it, like it's a Desmos pet house project where they make like a little house out of lines and they do domain and range constraints. And I've never seen a more complex pet house before. I will say that. And he just was so involved artistically and so involved with, he wanted to know how to make shading and he wanted to know how do I make circles and he wanted to know how do I make dotted lines. He learned so much additional math from that one little linear functions project. I think that I've allowed space because I've been given these resources. I've been able to allow students space to be mathematicians in ways that they wouldn't have necessarily gotten to have space in a traditional classroom. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. Oh, that's fantastic. And you had referenced, well, there's a couple things there that I'd love to comment on. The first one is the MTBOS or the MIT boss, as you mentioned, and I teach math. Those are two hashtags that it seems just referenced. So if you're not on Twitter, those are great hashtags to check out. John and I have an episode early on in the podcast. I think it's in the teen episodes. It might be on episode 15 or 19. I have to double check that and we'll put it in the show notes. But just talking about the value and the benefit of being online. And even if you start as a lurker and just sort of follow those hashtags, you don't have to necessarily post, but you can find all kinds of really cool things. And this Desmos Pet House Project will definitely put some links to some really interesting Desmos projects that you can do. I had done a variation of that with some of my students who were your traditional, I guess, remedial math students where I was teaching these students who had come to me out of elementary school. It was a grade nine class as well. And, you know, they 
typically didn't have a great experience with math. And when we did those Desmos projects for mine, I had it where they could really do whatever they wanted. So a lot of students had picked, you know, logos of teams they liked or just different designs that they were inspired to do. And again, it was one of those scenarios where this was a number of years ago now. And I remember almost I felt out of my comfort zone because I had students coming up to me. We really only studied linear relations and didn't do anything outside of that. So when students were saying like, how do I make this one curve? I remember feeling this stress and anxiety, like we're not really supposed to even be doing that yet. But kids were coming and making circles and they were Googling and they were doing all kinds of great things. And the designs that they came up with, it sounds like were very similar to the experience you had as well, which is fantastic. So thanks so much for giving the Math Moment Maker community an awesome resource to grab from this episode. So now I'm wondering if we can maybe switch gears a little bit. You've shared with us a recent success through what you've learned online and resources you've run into and the successes you've had in your class using those resources. I'm wondering, do you have any struggles or challenges that you've experienced along your teaching journey? What's on your mind lately that we might be able to dive into? (laughs) Yeah, just have about a million challenges is all. So (laughs) we could just go through those one by one that'd be great perfect okay so i spent some time kind of like just trying to think through my experience because it's a little murky so i'll try to consolidate it a bit like i said i started with so many resources and my very first year of teaching i was given a curriculum and it was a really good curriculum cpm it's really doing a lot of good things and my second year of teaching i tossed it out completely and immediately jumped on the train of, I need to create new tasks and create new ideas. And I was doing React tasks and Desmos tasks and read about thinking classrooms. And I think that there's just so many different resources out there that I started implementing, even just starting my second year of teaching. And I feel like very, very quickly, I got overwhelmed. I mean, like I could list a million of the different resources that I list, but or that I've used, but there's just so many different. I think I will just because it kind of like leads into the question that I have. Things like even John, like the work on Fresh Grade that you've done about like assessing students and making a portfolio. There's this guy Dane Ellert in Texas. He has these amazing like website of amazing tasks, and he does stuff with standards-based grading, or even like old classics, like Tomlinson's book on differentiation, or like understanding by design, or Fawn Wynn's visual patterns, like there's so many. And then there's even like full curriculums now, like the illustrative math, open up curriculum, that's like free and open resource now. And I feel like there's just so many different resources out there. And then your guys's podcast is amazing and getting people aware of so many different resources that are out there. And I think that I'm at a point now where I'm overwhelmed in two very specific ways. And they both leave me saying like, where should I focus and what's most important? And I think that that's my main question is where do I focus and what's most important? And I think that that comes up in two ways. So one, it's like, In the five practices episode, you guys talked about step zero sub one and zero sub two. The first two practices actually, like the very first one actually being having a clear learning goal. And I think my first question is, where do I start? And what's most important with finding a good learning goal in a lesson? I think that I've been so inundated with tasks 
that sometimes it's really hard to find a learning goal and to know what my learning goal should be or in what sequence it should be. So that's one is where do I focus in terms of finding a good learning goal in a particular lesson? But then there's a bigger thing that I think I'm realizing is where do I focus and what's most important when choosing professional goals? I think that there's so many different aspects of math education that are being talked about online and in communities. There are so many frameworks given, so many assessment assessment tools, excuse me, so many different tasks and lessons. And I feel like it's hard to know as an educator in what season I should focus on what aspects of my professional journey. Like, is this the year that I'm going to focus on grading and assessment? Or is this the year that I'm going to focus on community building in my classroom? Or is this the year that I'm going to focus on, like, I'm going to try implementing some stuff from thinking classrooms? There's so many different avenues to go through. And I think that it's probably like a really individual question because I think that people are in so many different places. But I'm wondering if there's a way to kind of delineate for people and for myself, just like, depending on your situation, how do you choose where to focus both in terms of instructional goals and in terms of professional goals? So big question that has a million questions in it. So right, 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 right. (laughs) That's where I'm at right now. (laughs) So let me summarize a little bit about what you've articulated here that you're feeling a lot of pressure and also overwhelm because there are so many great resources out there and you're not sure where to focus. And also like, you're left wondering what's most important. Like, should I be using this resource? Is it more important than that resource? You're also wondering, how do you find a learning goal? Like, where should the learning goal be? And also what that sequence is. Does that help summarize a few of the things yeah. that you're warning yeah. on? And then you also have some wonders about where to choose professional goals and frameworks and assessment tools. And there's like, there's so many things out there and you're just left overwhelmed at like what to do here there you go this is like when you go to netflix and you've completed the last season of uh of uh (laughs) for me it was suits recently uh, stranger things (laughs) you've been watching suits for like three years (laughs) you know you just watch stranger things and you're like now what do i watch and you look at everything and it's it's like that looks good and that looks good but i don't know which one to do first like which one is going to be the best bang for my time except the only difference is that like kids' education is at stake. <laughs> Which one yeah. It's not it's not just my my time fill at then in the evenings for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um it, it, it actually matters, eh? Is basically what it comes down to. Does that help a little bit summarize? Yeah, totally. So like I guess I'm wondering, so you mentioned a little bit about like how you've tried to narrow some, like you narrow your focus. You're thinking like, what is my focus? What are the most important things? You want to elaborate a little bit more about how you've tried to narrow this focus? Because it is the math resource world is huge. And you know, it's not only just out there for us to benefit students, but there's a ton of people doing this as part of their living. And they want you to use their resources because then, you know, that district or school board will adopt that and pay, you know, what it costs to run that curriculum or or use that textbook or use that online tool that you have to pay for. Like it's a business out there too. So what have you done so far to narrow a little bit of that focus? So I think that this past year, I've kind of tried to categorize the millions of resources into four or five major categories. And then 
each of these past two years, I've been asking myself which of these five categories is the most important to me right now in the situation that I'm in, because my students and the school I was teaching in last year is a very different school than the one I'm teaching in this year, even though they're both in Southern Illinois. And so it's actually changed a bit. Like last year, I think that I'll say that the five that I've written down here are professional community building, like the MIT boss and I teach math. Like that's just a way to get to know people across the country and across the world. And then I also have, there's different frameworks that are available. That's number two is frameworks. So stuff like three act math, understanding by design, thinking classrooms. Number three, I have as like grading and assessment tools, like the formative five and Dylan Williams work on formative assessment. Then I have number four is like tasks and lessons, which is like all the little one-off tasks or full curriculum sets that are available. And then like five is just like building community in your classroom and building relationships with kids. And I think that last year, my full focus was just on building relationships with kids because there were so many places where the math wasn't even the most important part, I feel like, for so many of the kids there. The school was just so... I think that they were really struggling to build relationships with students and build relationships between students. And so that was my number one focus was even before the math was these relationships are the most important thing. I think here at the school that I'm teaching at currently, relationships are a bit more solid. I think that they're doing a lot more work socio-emotionally. And so now I'm thinking that the most important for me might be to, because I still feel kind of alone at that school, I think that for me, it's the professional community building aspect and reaching out to different people on MitBoss, not even necessarily worrying about what tasks I'm going to teach that day, but focusing on my, my relationship with other teachers, because I'm no longer at a school where every single math teacher is on the same page. And so I think that that's kind of how I'm doing it right now is just categorizing and trying to figure out what makes most sense to me professionally. But then for the instructional goals question, man, I don't know. I've just been <laughs> I've just been trying to figure it out. There's so many different things I've tried. I could list them, but I just don't feel like they've worked. I feel like I've tried a million different things to choose appropriate instructional goals, and maybe it'll work for a lesson. But then for a unit or a sequence of lessons, I feel like sometimes the main point of that unit is lost. So I guess really I have like two separate questions. They're connected by my feeling of being overwhelmed. Maybe we could just talk about one of them to narrow things down, but I feel like they're two different things. First off, I just want to make a comment and say how clearly you are a very reflective educator, which is fantastic. And in some ways, <laughs> that might feel like a bad thing for you, right? Because you are so reflective that now you have all these ideas and you're very aware that there's all of these things that we can constantly be getting better at. And that's a good thing as long as we don't overwhelm ourselves with that thought as well, right? I mean, if we're just ignorant to it, then we just sort of wake up every morning and keep doing what we're doing. And I was that teacher for a while anyway. And 
I found like I was changing things, but I just didn't know what I was changing or why I picked that one to change. So here it's great to see that you're really thinking it through and you're kind of organizing yourself, organizing your thoughts in order to try to direct your attention to the one that you think is, I guess, the highest need for yourself professionally, but also for your students in the classroom. So you had listed about five ideas here, and I'm going to read them backwards. You talked about community. You said that was something that you'd been spending a lot of time on. You talked about like tasks and lessons. So that was kind of a group of like, what is it that I'm actually going to be doing today? Like what curriculum might I be using? Talked about grading and assessment. That's a huge challenge that many, many people struggle with. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. You have frameworks in there. You know, Peter Lildehall was on here with his thinking classroom framework. We talk about three act math tasks all the time, like even five practices. Number one, though, I missed number one as you introduced that. Do you mind sharing number one? Which one was that? Professional community building. So we have professional development, which is great as well. And that's kind of like one of the bigger ones as well. So I want to roll back a little bit. One of the first things that you had shared with us earlier in the conversation was this idea that in one of your first years, you had been given a curriculum and it was the CPM curriculum. We'll link to that in the show notes for those who want to dive into that. You had mentioned that you had sort of put that on the back burner or kind of shoved it aside and started going out there and looking at all these different resources that are available to us. I'm wondering what wasn't working for you or wasn't jiving for you that made you sort of set that one aside and sort of move on to something else? Was there anything in particular that sort of pops out at you? My answer now probably is different than the answer I would have given you right when I did it. I think right when I moved on, I probably would have said, oh, like there's too much reading that kids have to do to get through to the math behind it. Kids get really frustrated the group roles don't always work out. There's like so many different little things I probably would have said. But I think retrospectively, I think that I would say I wasn't very good at implementing it. And I don't think I had the tools that I needed to implement the curriculum. And so in education, something you get really used to really quickly is, at least in the education spaces I've been in, is you try something, doesn't work, you toss it, you do a new program, you toss it, you do a new program. Like it's just such a common reality, I feel like in education spaces is to just be inundated with new programs and new ideas and just try new things. Well, something that pops into my mind, I know, is that oftentimes we'll see people like when John and I will go and do live workshops or we go and in my district, I get to go into schools and work with teachers and PLCs. And, you know, I think helping ourselves. And I'm glad that you've sort of recognized this, that initially it's sort of like, ah, it's the resources fault. And I did the same. And I think for a number of years, I was sort of like anti-textbook. And, you know, even though I never said to people not to use textbooks, I have teachers that still nowadays sort of say, I've ditched the textbook and they like want to high five me. And I'm like, oh, that's not necessarily what we want people to be doing. Like what I realize now is that I wasn't very effective using the textbook that I had. And it sounds like you've come to that same conclusion with CPM. You know, that curriculum, no matter what we pick, really a lot of it has to do with our 
teacher moves when we're using those resources, right? So whether it's CPM, which I've seen some really cool things in CPM, and I'm sure you recognize that now that, hey, maybe had I done it a different way, and even kind of like stretching across to some of these five categories you have, like even if like I was to change the framework of how I delivered some of those lessons, maybe I would have had a different response, right? Like you had mentioned group roles didn't always work out. Well, you know, for me, I used to sort of do things the way they were presented to me instead of me sort of reflecting and going, hmm, how could I take this idea or this task or this lesson and how could I take what's there and modify it to suit the students in front of me? Because in reality, you know, when we're writing curriculum of any type, we're essentially writing it for the middle and not my entire class isn't going to be that one group. I have to sort of think about how am I going to stretch this? How am I going to move and actually pivot what's there in order to dive a little deeper with it? So it sounds like you're hoping to figure out like, how do I get the most bang for my buck when I'm doing all of this work? And where should you focus on in order to get rid of some of the other things that I hate to call it a distraction because everything you've mentioned is great, but if I'm getting overwhelmed, then it actually is a distraction. So I'm wondering right now, if you're zooming out, it sounds like you said professional development tends to be kind of where you're focusing on, or at least the community, like trying to build that community up. Do you feel like you've been able to sort of start that sort of relationship in person with some teachers in your new building, or are you still kind of in that relationship building stage? How are you doing on that front? Well, yesterday it was literally my first day in the building and my first day getting to know teachers. The school is awesome and they're doing like a lot of community building between teachers. And so that was really great. I think that, yeah, it was definitely like a good opportunity to get to know other teachers, especially math teachers in the building. I really quickly want to go back to something you said, though, that when you said distraction, I think that that's such a good word, even though it sounds so negative. It's interesting because when I think of like the five practices and I think of how important it is to choose an instructional goal, like if the instructional goal is not appropriate or if it's not clear, then the rest of the five practices don't really lead you anywhere. They're just connecting different people to different ideas, but they're not leading the kids anywhere. And I think that my frustration with choosing instructional goals is that there's instructional goals and then there's teachers are not just instructors. There's like a million different things going on. And so I think I've had these millions of things going on in the back of my head that literally are exactly that. They're distractions from having a clear instructional goal. And I'm even thinking about what you said about curriculums and how people talk about the textbook. And I think it is a very common thing to talk about how textbooks don't work or aren't the way to go. But I think that textbooks and curriculum can be a support to lean on in terms of like, I'm not going to think about the actual task or lesson I'm going to use. I'm going to use the ones that are in front of me, but the way I'm going to implement them is completely different. You know, you can have very clear instructional goals that way because they've already been kind of lined up and outlined for you. But I think that didn't sit well with me for a long time. It felt like I needed to create my own. And I don't know if other math teachers out there are feeling the same pressure of like, we should be creating our own lessons. And, you know, I need to have make a visual pattern and I'm going to, you know, combine it with this other thing that I heard about. And that's going to be my lesson today. But like how important that instructional goal is and how easy it is for that instructional goal to get lost. For me, everything is about 
that instructional goal for that lesson in that day. It's, we have to start there. And it's like, what do I want my students to know? What do I want my students to do? What do I want my students to understand? We have to think about those things when we go into lessons. I used to be the teacher that, you know, would be like, ah, that lesson looks really fun and really engaging and really awesome for the kids to do. I want to try that. And it's almost like you feel a lot of temptation to throw out or throw it into whatever you're going to do that day, even though it might not make sense in terms of your flow and your progression of ideas and in your unit planning or your curriculum planning. So I used to be like that. And I had to hold back and go, okay, like, no, what do I want my students to know, understand and do on these ideas? And then I'm going to slot activities and resources and lessons in that fit that. So it always has, for me, it has to start with the learning goal to begin with. And then, you know, a lot of us don't throw out those maps, those learning goal maps, because we have somewhere to begin. Like the textbook, when I started to teach through activity and task, I didn't throw everything out the door and say, like, I'm going to start from scratch and I'm going to build my own progressions. We can't do that when we start teaching from the beginning as teachers to start off, like in your early career, you need that map, you know, you need that kind of roadmap to help you understand some of those connections. When I first started teaching, I thought I knew all the math, but you know what I didn't know was how all the ideas connected together. And I didn't understand that until later. I didn't understand that until I started to teach and use those roadmaps that were there before me to see like, oh, you know what, this would work a little better if I switched the order of what the textbook says to do. You know, textbooks will be like 1.1. That's like day one, do this. Day two, do this. And you would get the feeling with your students, which order that should go in after you've done it a few times. So it's like, I'm not throwing everything out the window and thinking I have to build it from scratch. It's if this lesson hasn't been working for that particular group of students, how can I change it? How can I modify it? How can I make it more engaging? And then there's resources to fill those things out there and frameworks to help you kind of design how that lesson might go versus what the textbook says to do. So like when we think of what those learning goals are, and what are our main goals are for our students? Like think about right now, Asim, if you ran into a kid five years from now or two years from now or at the end of your school year and you ask them, like, what did you remember about my math class? Or you can even just think, like, what do you want them to be able to do? Or what do you want them to say when you say, like, think about my math class? What did you learn from my math class? What would you want that kid to say? I think for me, I'd want them to have more, especially now that I'm teaching eighth grade, I'd want them to go into high school with a sense of, I have mathematical agency. I can do math. I can think through a problem that I have no idea how to start and I can use all the tools that I have at my disposal to try to creatively make sense of a question or of an idea. I'd want kids to tell me like, I learned that, you know, math is messy and I learned that math is powerful and I learned that I could be creative. It's more of those like more enduring understandings about what math is and what math can do that I'd want them to learn. And I think that that's also what makes learning goals hard because today I want you to learn the Pythagorean theorem. I want you to learn the proof of the Pythagorean theorem. But really what I want you to learn is how powerful visuals are, like how powerful it is to draw, a like you draw a box on the end of a right triangle on all the three sides and you see something amazing. It's just like there's these deeper understandings that I want them to come away with, the enduring understandings. 
in my mind, I'm picturing you going from like this really specific thing that I feel like, I don't know if it was intentionally done, but in my pre-service, I felt like everything was so, so granular. And I focused so much on all these tiny, tiny little pieces. And when you do that, I recall Joe Bowler mentioning this, even just about how curriculum writers write curriculum and they break it down, they silo it down into these little tiny parts. And what ends up happening is you sort of lose all of the connections that you began with, right? So now it's almost like we're sort of trying to figure out how do we work backwards there? And I feel like you just did that when you were talking about the Pythagorean theorem. Like you were visualizing like, okay, so I want you to be able to do the Pythagorean theorem. That's like this little tiny granular piece. But then you were sort of going, wait a second. No, what I really want you to be able to do is I want you to see and visualize how the mathematics works and not just with Pythagorean theorem, but that all of these things that we're doing in our course, like there's ways, like it all makes sense, right? And it all connects. And there's a way that we can actually tackle these problems by using what we know instead of just sort of memorizing some steps and procedures. So it sounds like you're kind of going up a level. And I feel like as you kind of back yourself up and then start to really picture, like I'm picturing a web of your entire course and you sort of like spending some time. I know you're only a week out here, uh, about eight days from starting the school year, but even to just like take a whiteboard and sort of like, what is it that I need to teach this year and get almost like a mind map going where you're looking at how do these things connect? Like, what about this over here? Like, what about Pythagorean theorem is connected to something over here? And I mean, obviously, like, probably the algebra connects this idea and this idea and the conceptual, like the visuals. So how might I use some of that in this big picture thinking? Here's the challenge for us as educators. We need to be able to kind of see it both ways because kids aren't going to see this big picture yet. So it's almost like we have to be able to do both. It's like we have to be able to go down to some smaller pieces. But then once we're doing these smaller pieces, we have to have some sort of way to help kids start putting those pieces together. And I feel like if we're thinking about that as we plan out our course, when you had mentioned, like, how do I sequence these different topics? If I've got this big picture and I'm kind of going, okay, once they have a handle on this idea over here, I'm going to start doing a little bit with this idea over here. But then now, how am I going to bring those together somehow? And it doesn't mean it has to be this magical lesson where fireworks are going off. So you have your head wrapped around those things. And I'm going to argue that it probably can look different depending on the courses or sorry, the person teaching the course and how you bring those things together. But I think the key is that you see it some way, both in that more granular sense and in that more big picture, like these big chunks. And that might help you with answering that question of like at the end of the school year, like John had said, what am I hoping students will achieve? And it's easy for us to say, I want them to be a good problem solver. I want them to be critical thinkers. Those are definitely huge. And I think those are the most important. But then if we are thinking like, well, there is this content stuff too that I'm required to teach, like what would you hope students were able to do? And there's some things I'm going to argue in every course that are like big things that you're like, this is key. And then there's other things that are like, okay, these are more nuanced. These are more the really granular pieces. And not to say we don't do those pieces, but it's like, how do I make sure that kids get the big idea 
that I want them to see, those big pieces. Are you seeing that as something to kind of wrap your mind around a little bit? I am. I think that actually this is the first year that I've actually done something similar to the process that you're talking about with the whiteboard and making a map. And I think that that was like the first sigh of relief that I've had in a long time. So I think that you're right on the money with that. You're right. It's like such a juggling act of we need to be granular, but then there's also this bigger level of, it sounds like you're talking about three different levels. There's like the Pythagorean theorem, which is like the most granular. Then like there's a little bit more abstract, which is the idea of like, you know, I want them to learn visual models or I want them to learn multiple representations, bigger ideas. And then there's even like this bigger idea, which is like, I want them to be creative problem solvers. All three of these are happening simultaneously. And you somehow as the math teacher have to juggle that with 30 kids in your class and get them all to some place. And I think that it's just a hard job that we have, but it's a wonderful job that we have. I'm wondering specifically, John, I think you're in the secondary classroom, right? Like you're in high school. And I'm thinking, I know that you guys have both talked a lot about interleaving or like um, spiraling. And I'm curious because John, you just talked about how you originally used the textbook and like used the sequencing that was there for you and realized like how great the sequencing was. But I'm wondering, like, I guess, how do you unit plan or how do you create your instructional goals? Like, what's the methods that you use to because I even watched your, I think you had like a video a day about your classroom and you see how you're moving from topic to topic, but it really felt like you guys were going somewhere. I think like that's the part that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Like Kyle said about making the maps, that's a great way to see the connections. But I'm just curious for you, is that like what your process looks like or how do you delineate learning goals for the year? Yeah, like if I'm starting a course for the first time and I haven't taught it before, then I'm usually using, primarily using an already existing resource. So maybe it's somebody else's day by day, or maybe it's the textbook and I can interchange things that I want, but I need to follow a map for sure the first time. But like I said before, that after I've taught it many, 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 many times, I start to feel like where I can interchange things. And so that's what we did with when we spiraled, say, my grade nine math class. And that's when we did the 30 days and 30 minutes videos. I was mostly following my grade nine and and grade 10 applied math classes. And for those classes, after teaching them many times, I got a sense that, you know, I would do a few days on a particular big idea like we've just talked about and then move on to a different big idea, but kind of jump strands too. So the idea behind spending some time on one strand and then moving to a different strand, a couple of reasons. One is that I wanted my students, one of my big ideas, overarching big ideas is I wanted them to problem solve. And I was teaching through tasks and bringing the learning, you know, I had the particular learning goal in mind of what I wanted to accomplish that day, but they didn't. And we would do a task and it was kind of a mystery of what we were trying to solve or what we were trying to, uh, for them, they didn't know what learning, like, you know, I guess I should back up a little bit and think about this. I compare it to the textbook. If you want your students to actually problem solve and you're teaching out of uh, chapter three and chapter three is all about proportions and proportional reasoning and you do a problem and you say or three act math tasks or another activity where it's a little bit of a mystery, which is the great part about three act math tasks, right? There's some mystery when you ask kids what to notice and wonder and they know that when the problem solving comes, if you're teaching out of the textbook following that plan, then they know that they have to use 
proportional reasoning to solve this problem. They're just trying to figure out where it goes. And the kids spend more time trying to think about where proportional reasoning fits in than to actually just try to solve the problem. And so I wanted my students to problem solve at a deeper level. I wanted them to reach back into their minds and think, what have we learned so far that I can apply to solve this problem? And that might not necessarily be proportional reasoning, which was what we did a couple of days ago. So part of spiraling was keeping them on their toes a little bit about reaching into their minds to pull out old learning and apply it to new learning, to strengthen those connections, to help them. Part of it is that I wasn't liking the idea that in September I would teach measurement and then never talk about measurement again. There's so many connections that exist. So like Kyle said, that kind of brain, like that map, that web is out there that you can continually bring back strands to connect to other strands. So partly it was what you're seeing in there was, is once I got comfortable with the content of the course, I could say, you know, we're going to spend about three to four days on Pythagorean theorem or two to three days on Pythagorean theorem. And then what we'll do is that was a part in our measurement strand. And then we might switch to do some patterning and bring in some linear relations work and do some patterning for a week. And then we'll switch to proportional reasoning. I've seen that I'll kind of mix things up that way for those reasons. But keeping in mind, there's a list of things that we do need to check off that we have introduced to the students to strengthen. But I could only get to that point because of the many times I taught that course and knew the connections between the concepts so that when we're doing linear relations and we're doing some patterning, when I saw someone use a proportional table or a number line, we can talk about that and how it connected to the proportional reasoning stuff we did before. Like there's a lot of connections that can be made. and, And that's where the five practices has been great as a framework for kind of structuring those lessons. So that's kind of how I would do it when you plan those things out. But I wanted to touch on one of your main questions for today, which was, you know, like this overwhelm of ideas. And you were looking for like, what is the best? Like, where should I focus my time and energy? And where should I leave things out? You know, and for us, you have to think like, it's been a journey, you know, like we have tried things and felt like, hey, that worked. And then that didn't. And I think that's what teaching is, you know, like, every kid is different in your class. And the more tools you can have at your disposal, the better you're equipped to deal with a student when you're working with them one-on-one or in a small group setting, like you will know what has worked for different kids if you try things out. So I think the answer for me is let's not someone tell me what the best tool is right now. And then I won't look at the other ones. It's no, try out the tools, like try out tools that you're wondering what effect will this have? Like, look at what it will give you as an educator, what you will strengthen in your own learning, what your own teaching skills. So I would say if you have time to learn something and try out that activity, do it and make notes on what you learned. If it was a flop, you learned something. So I think it's a journey for us. And it's through all of that trial and error where you're going to become the best teacher. Yeah, I feel like I'm hearing a couple different things in that. One, there's just the simple fact that when you start a brand new course, that's really helpful to hear that you do go based off of some other pre-existing pacing plan or map. And I think that that's really helpful to hear because I don't feel like I hear conversation about unit planning or about maps that already exist that often, especially in professional learning spaces. I feel like the more exciting things to talk about are like the individual tasks or like, look at this thing I created on teacher.desmos.com. But I think that it's so refreshing to hear like to go with a pre-existing resource and just teach through it. A second thing is just like it takes time 
as a teacher. This is why teaching is a long-term profession. And I think so often in this country, in the United States, like teacher turnover rates are insane and people are leaving the profession after just a couple of years in it. And it is such a lifetime experience of like constantly refining tools and figuring out what works best for you and what works best for your particular set of kids. And I think that you're exactly right. Like trying different things is what has allowed me to even come up with this list of all the different resources out there because I've just tried so many different things. While I look back and I'm like, man, I really could have used that CPM curriculum. It now is leading me to a place where I feel totally okay using a preset curriculum and supplementing it with different frameworks or different grading system or whatever. It feels freeing to know that it's okay to try things out and freeing to know that it's also okay to take time before you're at a place to, for example, do spiraling. Like that's not just something that you come into a course, you've never taught it before. And oh yeah, I have time during the summer. I'm totally going to just interleave these topics. No problem. It's not feasible. And so I think that it feels like releasing to be able to say, okay, those are things I don't need to focus on and my kids will still be great for it. Sort of to summarize, we were talking about those different levels of granular to sort of that in between and then to the big picture. And I feel like the big picture I'm hearing from your takeaway here is let's not all try to just be a hero. I think it's really hard because we want to help all children. And this is one of the struggles I've talked about on the podcast in the past is I come in and would actually be the hero and save kids on problems and that rob them of their experience. But then also on this level of the planning and delivering of lessons that each and every one of us don't have to write our own curriculum. Now, there's a lot of learning that comes from doing that type of work, but let's not get carried away with it, especially early on. Let's start with something. And going back to that CPM curriculum, if we push that curriculum aside and we try to go from scratch, then of course, we're going to feel overwhelmed. There was a lot of people that work on these different textbooks and resources and very, very knowledgeable people and experienced people that have a lot more experience than you or I did, especially at the beginnings of our career. So not to completely dismiss, but maybe taking those and either upping them, right? Like, so maybe upping the lesson to modify it some way. For example, in our academy, we just released a couple versions of a task called Spin to Win. And that task is actually based on a resource here in Ontario called the Guides to Effective Instruction. There's the task inside of there that I read it and I went, wow, this is like an interesting task. Here's how I would do it now that I've thought about it. And That's a test that we've taken and we've sort of upped it a little bit. We've added some visuals to it, some different prompts to it, things that this is how I would deliver this particular lesson. So it's not like it's brand new. However, a lot of people might look at that task and think like, how did Kyle or John think of these tasks from scratch? And in many cases, they aren't from scratch. You know, I'm thinking about the magic rectangle task that's on our website. John and I built that based off of a word problem out of a textbook, but we did change the context of the actual problem. But the actual values were selected really specifically by the textbook authors. So we thought, wow, it makes sense to use these particular dimensions. And now we're just going to change the context a little bit so that it's a little more curious. And also that it sort of creates this need for students to want to do the work. So, you know, kind of take that thinking and say, okay, where's my starting point? And it's okay for it to be a starting point. And I guess don't throw out 
a lesson, a unit, a resource until you've found what you're going to replace it with. That's like a message. And I've done this. We're not saying, you know, hey, bad move there, Seem Like John and I have both had this where we've said, ah, I'm going to do this on my own. And then we push it aside and then we go and we try to find something. But then who knows what we're going to come up with, right? We might come up with something that's 10 times better or we might come up with something that's nowhere near as good. And that's not a really great situation as well. So it sounds like you've had a biggest takeaway and you've shared some of that, you know, kind of visualize over this next week, what is going to be your focus for this particular week leading into the start of the school year so that you're not distracted by the billion things you could be thinking about. And they're all valid things to be thinking about. But what's the thing that you're going to focus on this coming week to get yourself ready for this brand new school year? So earlier last year, I decided because I'm teaching eighth grade for the first time, I'm going to do you know exactly like John talked about and use an already existing resource So I'll be using the open up illustrative math resources that are available as open ed resources online. And I have already kind of like worked my way through the year long curriculum and have already started that process, like that whiteboarding process that Kyle, you were talking about earlier. But I think that's something I want to do for this week in particular is I kind of want to have like an artifact or maybe like some kind of web that can fit on a sheet of paper, like on my desk or right next to my desk in my room. So I can just have that to continue to look at because I feel like I've done the work to kind of think through those connections, but to just see it every day, I feel like will keep me grounded or bring me back to a place of like, this is my job. This is what I'm trying to do right now. Be patient and make those connections the best that I can with the kids. If I can make some kind of reminder to myself to do that. So I think that that's what I'm going to do this week. Good, good start for sure. You know, uh, one of your questions was about like building community and talking with other teachers and in our academy right now, we have a very active forum um, teachers on in there. We have a water cooler area where teachers post questions and other people in that community answer. And Kyle and I get in there and answer and chat and some groups are forming. It's a very vibrant community going on in the academy, which also has tasks and video lessons. And I think you would be a great addition to the academy. And I think also you could benefit a lot from kind of continuing this conversation there and talking your way through some of the other things. We would love to offer you a membership into the academy for free. Would you love to join us? Oh, man, of course. Awesome. We will hook you up with the details after we're done here, and then you will be in. And if anyone else wants to check out the academy, they can. We'll put the link in the show notes. We are just about out of time. Kyle, uh, are you ready to wrap up? I think so, Asim. It's been such a fantastic discussion. I'm so happy that we finally had a chance. Uh, we had to cancel or reschedule. And then Asim had to reschedule with us because you know how summer goes, right? In our minds, we say, ah, oh, we're going to have all the time in the world. And then things come up. So it's so great to finally get a chance to uh, chat with you about some of these challenges and struggles. You know, and I know, John, that everybody is at home nodding their heads saying, like, <laughs> wow, yeah, Asim, you have highlighted many of my challenges. Uh, remember, you had said that you only had about a million or so, right? And as educators, we 
we all have those. And it's great to really just have this opportunity to chat with you openly about it. I know it's helping people at home. And I can't wait to continue this discussion in the Academy with you. As we said, we'll flip those details. Is it okay if we possibly check in with you in, let's say, eight to 12 months to bring you back onto the podcast and see how things are moving along, like and where you're at? I'm sure that the million challenges, maybe you'll be down to like 999,000 by that point, right? Which is a great progress, but just to check in and see how things are moving along so we can all continue this discussion. Would that be okay? That'd be amazing. Thank you guys so much. Well, thank you so much, Asim. We've had a blast and I know that the listeners have too. So enjoy your last week here and definitely keep us posted on how things are going inside the Academy. We can't wait to see inside. Will do. Have a good one. As always, both John and I learned so much from these Math Mentoring Moment episodes, but in order to ensure we hang on to this new learning, we must reflect on what we've learned. An excellent way to ensure that learning sticks is to reflect and create a plan for yourself to take action on something you've learned here today. A great way to hold yourself accountable is to write down and even better, share it with someone, your partner, your colleagues, or with the Math Moment Maker community by commenting on the show notes page, tagging at Make Math Moments on social media or in our free private Facebook group, Math Moment Makers K through 12. We chatted with Asim today about choosing learning goals and narrowing your focus. If you want more professional learning, we encourage you to register for the Make Math Moments Virtual Summit. Yes, that's right. We're running a free online math professional development summit for K through 12 educators. The Make Math Moments Virtual Summit is running on Saturday, November 16th and Sunday, November 17th, and will feature sessions from past and upcoming Making Math Moments That Matter podcast guests such as Joe Bowler, Andrew Stadel, Sunil Singh, Dr. Nikki Newton, Skip Fennell and his team of formative five authors and many more. Register for this year's summit at makemathmoments.com forward slash summit. If you're listening to this episode after November 17th, 2019, you can still head to the makemathmoments.com forward slash summit to add your name to the wait list for the next Make Math Moments virtual summit. Head on over now, makemathmoments.com forward slash summit. Are you interested in joining us for an upcoming math mentoring moment episode like this one was where you can share a big math class struggle? Apply over at makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to rate and leave us a review. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 48. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 48. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. How can you take your district math program to the next level? Take the Make Math Moments 12-minute assessment and it will reveal what is going right with your district math program and what needs work. At Make Math Moments, we believe that an effective mathematics program should be developed like a strong, healthy, and balanced tree. 
The trunk represents leadership. Without strong and capable leaders, nobody knows the vision for the district, why it's important, or how to make the vision a reality. The roots of the tree represent mathematics content knowledge and what it means to be mathematically proficient. If your district math program doesn't consist of educators with deep mathematical content knowledge and promote instruction that develops all five strands of mathematical proficiency, the tree will not get necessary water and nutrients to thrive. Like a tree requires soil, water, and sunlight, your district mathematics program requires a productive educator mindset and the belief that all students can achieve at high levels. If this mindset and belief isn't clear to all students of all cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic experiences, and learner profiles, your mathematics program struggles to move forward. Your professional learning team or your professional development structure is represented by the limbs of the tree. If your professional learning team isn't inviting your teachers of mathematics into a meaningful story, you will not be able to support the work over the long term and create momentum. The branches of your tree represent the development of educator pedagogical content knowledge, including effective teaching and equity-based teaching practices. If you're spending valuable professional learning time on too many things that don't make an impact, the tree's canopy will get heavy and begin to sag, hindering growth. The final section is the leaves. The leaves represent resources, tools, and classroom environment. If a mathematics program doesn't have the necessary resources to do the work, the tree will starve, wilt, and eventually die. Are the six parts of your district mathematics program developing perfectly? Does your tree look like this or this? Our free assessment will help you grow a strong, healthy, and balanced mathematics program that works for all students in your district. Take the assessment and start growing your mathematics program today. And to take that assessment, head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash grow. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash grow. And uh, when you know how to strengthen those six parts of an effective math program, you're going to create a program that grows strong and wide.